We're going to be continuing in the book of Hebrews this morning, um, picking up in, in verse 5 of Hebrews 1. And this is, uh, I guess, what I would call an occasional series. I'd wanted to do some teaching in Hebrews, and Darren's going to be picking this series back up in September and October, and so we're going to be getting small doses of this wonderful book over the foreseeable future. But picking up in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5 this morning, follow along with me as I read. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you'll roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your name is holy. And so we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that your kingdom would advance this morning as your people gather to worship you. That your kingdom would advance in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. And that through us, your kingdom would advance in our city, in our country, and as we were reminded this morning, around the world. God, feed us our daily bread this morning. We ask these things by your grace and in your son's name. Amen. As we learned last week, the book of Hebrews is an extended sermon. It's written by an unknown author, and it's all about Jesus. Specifically, the book of Hebrews shows that in every way, Jesus is superior. And last week, we saw that in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, that God speaks a superior word about his son. Well, this week, we're looking at Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. And here, the author is arguing pretty convincingly that Jesus is superior to angels. He makes this argument in an interesting way. He does it by something called a chain quotation. It's exactly like it sounds. In nine verses, he strings together seven Old Testament quotations like links in a chain. And he's making his point. He doesn't make many comments on these verses. He doesn't offer much explanation. He says, Jesus is better than angels, and here's seven verses to prove that. 
So follow with me in these seven verses. That's, that's what he's asking his audience to do. Now, typically in the New Testament, and you see this a lot in the book of Hebrews, so you can just kind of flip over in your Bible and see this. An author in the New Testament will quote the Old Testament and then explain himself. Say, this is kind of why I chose this verse, and this is how it applies to the point I'm trying to make. But sometimes authors do what we see here. They've got a certain point in mind, and they don't limit themselves to one Old Testament reference. They go to like six or seven or eight. And they'll use these Old Testament passages which support their point. And the cumulative effect of this chain of quotations is that by the end of of, of getting to this chain, you're like, okay, yeah, I agree with you. You've made your point. Now let's move along. Many of us are familiar with uh, Paul doing something like this in Romans chapter 3. If you look at Romans 3 verses 10 through 18, Paul strings together six Old Testament quotations. And the point that Paul is trying to make is, no one is righteous. And you read these six Old Testament quotes, and by the time you get to the end of these six quotes, you're saying, hey, from head to toe, people are not good. Paul, you've made your point. Okay, now let's move on to the rest of the book. So this was a popular technique used by rabbis in the first century. And it's not surprising that the author of the book of Hebrews, although we don't know much about him, might make an argument like that. He's arguing from the Jewish scriptures, and he's using a Jewish-style argument in this instance. Commentator George Guthrie notes that the goal of a chain quotation like this was that by the end of a string of quotations, the listeners who would be hearing this, they'd be nodding their heads in agreement. That's the goal of doing something like this. And so I'm telling you this now at the beginning of my sermon, so at the end of my sermon I can look out and everybody's nodding in agreement. Jesus is superior to angels. That's one of the goals this morning is that we would know that. But even more significantly than just getting some nods from you guys, more significantly, my desire is that as we learn these things, as we see Jesus superior to angels, that our heads, our hearts, and our hands would be affected by this truth from God's word. That it would change who we are and how we live. We're going to look at our text this morning through three questions. First, which of the angels is called God's son? Second, which of the angels is eternal? And third, which of the angels sits at God's right hand? And so this first question we're going to see in verses 5 and 6. Which of the angels is called God's son? In verse 5 it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. One of the challenges of this passage in particular is that these verses require us to have a biblical understanding of angels. This passage is building on a proper understanding of angels and showing, hey, you know about angels, Jesus is even better. Jesus is superior to angels. But the issue is, many of us acknowledge the existence of beings beings called angels. You can read the Bible and it's hard to ignore, hey, angels exist. We need to believe that. But then practically we live like they don't exist. So there's kind of this discord between what we think and how we live. And so we need to be instructed by these early Christians who had a healthy view of angels. Angels are created spiritual beings who serve God 
and serve God's people. They often show up during important events in the history of God's interaction with his people. What we need to see in Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 is that the author of this book isn't challenging their view of angels. What he's challenging is their view of Jesus. You know about angels. You need to know about Jesus more. And you need to see that he's superior, that he's better. So right up front, some of us need to be challenged that angels exist. That they have been consistently present at key biblical events and they carry out important functions in scripture. And so this list could be much longer than this, but some significant events that angels are present in doing things at. They save Lot and his family from Sodom. They wrestle with Jacob at Peniel. They help give the law on Mount Sinai. They shut the mouths of the lions in Daniel's lion's den. They announce the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph, and not including the shepherds, too. They proclaim the resurrection of Jesus to the women at the tomb. Angels exist. We see them all over Scripture, and they're often carrying out important functions. In fact, somewhat ironically, this was a little bit of a head-scratcher for me this week as I was preparing. When we look at this question, which of the angels is called God's sons? Actually, angels are called sons of God three times in the Old Testament. In Job 1, verse 6, in Psalm 29, verse 1, and then Psalm 89, verse 7. So you can almost picture that one guy in this early church who's hearing the book of Hebrews for the first time, kind of raising his hand at this point. Well, actually, angels are called sons of God. But that objection is kind of funny. It'd also be a little bit annoying to have somebody do that. It misses the point that the author of the book of Hebrews is making. And it misses a crucial distinction between being called sons of God and being God's son. Now, in one sense, if you're familiar with the biblical message, this notion of being a son of God can be understood in a kind of generic way. And what I mean is angels are called sons of God. Israel is called God's firstborn son. The kings in the line of David are called God's sons. And New Testament believers were adopted as sons into God's family. And so this use of family language is applied to angels and Israel and human kings and New Testament believers. It's important. This is special language that we get when when God says, hey, I'm choosing to relate to one of my creations in this way. I'm bringing them into my family. But it's not because of what God's creatures are in themselves. Because God's creatures, including angels, relate to God as their father because of his gracious willingness to relate to them like that. Not because they deserve it, because of who they are. If you were here last week, I was talking about this circle on one side with God inside of it. God the Trinity, who's the creator and maker of everything. And then you've got this other separate circle of creation. And these two things are separate. When God the creator decides to relate to his creation, he's being gracious. He doesn't have to do that. But God graciously does it. And so when God is calling angels and Israel and human kings and us, his family, it's because he's being gracious to us, not because we deserve that. There's a huge difference between creatures and their creator. And it's up to the creator to choose to graciously interact with us. God doesn't have to interact with us. He doesn't have to interact with angels in that way. But the author of the book of Hebrews recognizes there is only one divine person who God relates to as their father 
because of who they are, and that's Jesus, because Jesus is God's divine son. So when God recognizes Jesus as his son, he's not being gracious to him, he's recognizing him for who he actually is. And the way the author highlights this is by quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 4. Now in their original context, both of these passages are God's statements about how he's going to relate to human kings in David's line. I'm going to relate to you like a father relates to his son. But when we start to remember that, first of all, you can read these two passages, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, you'll realize that God's people never saw the promises in those passages perfectly fulfilled to these human kings. You can look at David, you can look at Solomon. As great as those men were, those passages never perfectly described them. And so God's people had this expectation building in them for a Davidic king who would fulfill God's promises. We also need to remember that Jesus' human ancestry is in the Davidic line. That's why we get these genealogies at the beginning of two of our Gospels. Then we also need to remember that New Testament authors repeatedly recognize Jesus as the Davidic king God's people were waiting for. And so it makes perfect sense for the author of the book of Hebrews to apply these verses about human Davidic kings to Jesus. Because those human kings never fulfilled those verses as they should have. And so the major difference is when God called human Davidic kings sons of God... He was making them something they're not. But when God calls King Jesus his son, he's recognizing him for who he actually is. Remember what I said last week that Psalm 2 gives us this image of a coronation of a king. And at a coronation ceremony, a prince isn't adopted into the king's family and then made a king. At a coronation ceremony, a prince is recognized as the king's son and the rightful heir of all things. And then he's made the ruler. Yes, Jesus is recognized as God's son at a number of key points during his earthly ministry. You can think about Jesus' baptism and the Mount of Transfiguration, and God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But these verses are talking about Jesus' ascension to his heavenly throne. His coronation ceremony as king of kings and lord of lords, heir of everything. And so yes, angels are sons of God, but Jesus is God's son in a completely unique way. Not because God stoops down and wants to interact with Jesus in a gracious way, but because Jesus is God's son. And he's being recognized as that. He's co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father in his divine nature. And this difference between angels as sons of God and Jesus as God's son is emphasized with an Old Testament quotation. It's the third link in the chain. Deuteronomy 32, 43. Let all God's angels worship him. So here the author of the book of Hebrews actually breaks this chain quotation briefly. He wants to give a little comment on this. He says, when God brings Jesus into the world... This quotation from Deuteronomy 32, 43 is properly applied to Jesus. It's important to note in, in this context that the Greek word used for world here, as the author explains, hey, when Jesus came into the world, it's not the typical Greek word for world. It's actually the same word that's used in Hebrews 2, 5. 
when it's talking about the world to come. And so commentators have kind of agreed, hey, what's being said here is when God brings Jesus into the world to come, when he receives his coronation as king, the angels see him as he is and they worship him. So the author of the book of Hebrews still has in view Jesus' heavenly coronation. And as God's creatures, they worship their king. And interestingly, in Revelation 5, 11 through 12, the Apostle John gets this glimpse into the heavenly realms. This is what he sees. In Revelation 5, Jesus shows up in the heavenly throne room. He's depicted as a lamb who is slain. And this is what John says. I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's a lot of angels. And they're saying with a loud voice, so you can kind of picture this scene, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How do we know that Jesus is superior to angels? Because we see angels worshiping him. They're recognizing him for who he really is. And what's really cool is that we get to join in that worship set. Last week we talked about the proper response to seeing God's divine son as he really is. Being reinvigorated at worship. So how wonderful is it for us to think about that when we worship Jesus whether it's privately or with our families or together as a church body, whatever that looks like, when we worship, we join in with God's invisible creation, praising our king. This is the picture that we get in Revelation 4 and 5, this praise constantly happening in God's heavenly throne room. And we're able to join in whenever we want. is an invitation for us to cry out with angels worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and so i'd encourage you whether it's on a sunday morning or as you're going through your week or meeting with your community group or other believers when you spend time and see the Son as He really is, accept that as an invitation to worship Him with God's invisible creation right then and there. Which of the angels is called God's Son? Well, these sons of God with a lower at, lowercase s, they worship God's Son. Which of the angels is eternal? Let's look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says this, and pay attention, God is saying this about Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. And hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And he says this too. You, Lord, 
laid the foundation of the earth and the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you'll roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. It's interesting to see the flow of the argument in this passage. In the first section we looked at, there are these two verses about God's Son, and then this one short verse about angels. Now here we've got a a verse about angels, and then some longer quotations about God's Son. So there's this balance in the argumentation the author's making. You've got God's Son, and angels, and angels, and God's Son. And so there's this symmetry to his argumentation, but in another sense, you see the scales being tipped heavily in favor of God's divine Son. Even as we're talking about the amount of space given to him, you've got two lines here given to angels, and I count 12 given to God's divine Son. Angels are good. Jesus is superior. And this comparison of Jesus to angels in this section begins with a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. This verse shows that angels are messengers and ministers of God, but it also shows that they are created messengers and ministers of God. William Lane says this about the use of Psalm 104, verse 4 here. This verse speaks of the unstable nature of the angels who receive from God their respective form, rank, and task. Now, unstable there doesn't mean like angels fly off the handle, got really bad tempers, that's not what's being talked about with angels. It means they receive everything from God. They're created beings. As those who belong to the created order, angels are subject to God's creative activity and may be transformed into the elemental forces of wind and fire. What he's saying is that angels are God's servant, even if serving God means serving him as the wind or as fire. They are there to do God's will, whatever that means. So if God needs to use the angels as nothing more than elemental forces, they live to carry out God's will. That's their role. And like all created things, they are completely dependent on God for their existence. And so even these images that are chosen by the psalmist, wind which gusts in a moment and then is gone, fire which blazes for a time until its fuel is spent, these images suggest that angels are temporary and transitory because they're created beings, just like us. Angels are created so they change like the wind and they're temporary like fire. But God's Son is not a created being. The author quotes at length Psalms 45 and Psalm 102. Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7 suggest Jesus is God. Don't miss that. God the Father says to Jesus, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus' scepter, this symbol of his powerful rule over everything, is a scepter of uprightness. That should be a little bit shocking to us because we're used to people wielding power not with uprightness. That's what we've grown used to in a fallen world. This is a contrast to the management of earthly kingdoms. Earthly kingdoms are often governed by compromise and deception and crookedness. 
But earthly kingdoms are temporary. The throne of God's Son is forever and ever. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And his Father is pleased to anoint him as the forever king sitting on his forever throne. So you can see this contrast beginning to be drawn between angels and Jesus. Angels change like the wind. Jesus' throne is forever. And it's not just Jesus' throne which is permanent. As the next quotation, Psalm 102, 25 to 27 points out, Jesus is Lord. The Lord who laid the foundation of the earth and worked the heavens into existence. And so for us, as created beings, who have a set span of time that we live on this earth, and we look at the world, and it was here before us, and it will be here after us, and we look at the heavens, they were here before us, and they'll be here after us. These things seem permanent to us, not to God, not to God's divine Son. For God's divine Son, they are like garments which will wear out and be changed like an old pair of jeans that have lost their shape. Jesus remains. Angels are temporary like a fire, but Jesus is the same and his years will have no end. Now it's worth noting that many of the passages applied to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 are generally accepted as what would be called messianic or Christological passages. These are passages that scholars have kind of agreed, yeah, in some way they kind of anticipate Jesus. We can see that. We can see how the New Testament authors got from there to Jesus and why they're applying these verses to him. You can look at Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 45, and then we'll look at Psalm 110 in just a minute. And scholars are like, okay, we could see that. But Psalm 102 is talking about God. And what's really interesting is the author of the book of Hebrews thinks it's perfectly appropriate to apply all of these truths about the permanence and the eternality and the unchangeableness of God. In Psalm 102, to Jesus. Perfectly appropriate to do that. Which of God's angels can say that? That's incredible. God's Son is eternal. I'll remind you, the author of the book of Hebrews has nothing against angels. (laughs) It's just that angels, as great as they are, pale in comparison to God's divine Son. They are created, temporal, changeable beings. But Jesus is God's son, creator, eternal, and unchangeable. And so another way to get at what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus is good, and he is permanent. Jesus is good, and he's permanent. What a comfort that offers us in the midst of the swirling events and ever-changing circumstances of life. How many times in the last week has the ground just shifted under your feet? Whether it's just unforeseen circumstances that came up that you're kind of blindsided by. Maybe it's somebody that you typically can trust and just let you down this week. We live topsy-turvy lives. Everything's in motion. Can't lean on anything. And so to have Jesus who is good 
and permanent to lean on and rely on in our world is extremely comforting for us because our worlds are ever-changing. The heavens and the earth will perish, but he will remain. And we can lean on him, whatever the circumstances of life, whatever our relationships look like at that moment, he remains. He's good. There's a large church that I'd visit from time to time in college in really big letters because it's a big church, kind of back here on the back wall, behind the pulpit, behind the choir loft. They had Hebrews 13, 18, the whole verse in big letters. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so if you turned up for worship in the morning, you saw that verse constantly in the background. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I don't know why exactly they chose that verse to put on their back wall. I'd venture to guess that they realize the need for us as believers to be reminded again and again that Jesus is eternal and unchangeable, and we can lean on him. Which of the angels is eternal? Well, God's son is good, and he is permanent. The final question this passage asks is, which of the angels sits at God's right hand? Verse 13 says, To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, for the sake of teaching purposes, we've structured our walk through Hebrews 1 this morning around three questions. But there's really two questions, one question really, that's repeated twice in Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. In verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say? And then here in Hebrews 1, 13. To which of the angels has he ever said? So you've got these two instances of the same question. They kind of form an envelope around this passage. Uh, this packet, passage, it makes a nice package of a passage. It's a distinct unit, is what I'm trying to say. So this section begins with a quote from Psalm 2. This psalm that was already referenced in Hebrews 1, verse 2. And the section concludes with a quote from Psalm 110 which is already referenced in Hebrews 1, 3. And it's not very surprising that the author of the book of Hebrews would conclude this chain quotation with this verse from Psalm 110, because this is the Old Testament passage most frequently cited in the New Testament. 22 times this is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. But what's interesting is that he quotes Psalm 110 on the heels of Psalm 102. Commentators struggle to connect Psalm 102 to Jesus because the whole psalm is about God, and that's kind of the point. Jesus is God. But the other side of that coin is that commentators struggle to connect Psalm 110 to anyone but Jesus because it's talking about this king, but none of the kings in the Old Testament looked like Psalm 110. Who else could this be talking about? And so after Jesus' incarnation, life, death and resurrection from the dead, he ascended to heaven to sit at God's right hand and to rule. So this is both the conclusion to this chain quotation, but also its climax. This is what it's been working towards. Jesus enthroned at the Father's right hand. 
And George Guthrie points out the concept of the right hand is used in the Old Testament to represent either superior power or ultimate honor. Though it also carries the derivative meanings of greatness or favor. That's what it means when Jesus sits down at God's right hand. Superior power, ultimate honor, greatness, favor. And right now, that's where Jesus is sitting, at the Father's right hand. This passage also highlights that while Jesus' reign is inaugurated, it's begun, it's not yet consummated. Jesus still has enemies who need to be subjected to his sovereign rule of the universe. This verse underscores Jesus' power. He sits on the throne ruling while he patiently waits for his enemies to be like a stool under his feet. If that's not a picture of power, I don't know what is. This verse also serves as a sobering warning to anyone who would be considered God's enemies. Because Psalm 110 concludes this way, and it's not a pretty picture. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. These are the rulers of the earth, shattered. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Jesus sits at God's right hand and his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. What about angels? They are not the king sitting on his throne. The author of the book of Hebrews makes that clear. Verse 14. But to continue this image of a throne room, angels are the king's servants coming into his presence to hear his wishes and then being sent out again to carry out his bidding, whatever he asks. That's what they're there for. Angels are ministering spirits sent out from the king specifically to serve God's people in the world. Did you get that? Specifically to serve God's people in the world, those who are to inherit salvation. So for God's people, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 is encouraging. It's really encouraging. If you've turned from your sins and believe in Jesus, your king sits on his throne at God's right hand right now. He will defeat his enemies, and by extension, he will defeat your enemies as well. Satan will be crushed under his heel. The powers and principalities of our world will be made his footstool. And sin, your sin and my sin, will be vanquished. That's good news. Furthermore, if that's not good enough for you, God's Son commands the angels to serve for your sake if you're one of God's people. Now, admittedly, we don't have a lot of explicit teaching in the Bible about what angels do to minister to God's people But theologian Francis Turretin notes that in Scripture we see angels teaching God's people, consoling God's people, and guarding God's people. So if that's any indication for what God commands his angels to do for us, that's good. That's really good for us. We should be greatly encouraged that God's Son is commanding his angels, these created spiritual beings, to serve us of all people. Now, I imagine that most of the time we'll have very little idea that we're being cared for by angels in this way. But it's encouraging nonetheless that we see that God's Son is commanding angels to serve us. 
Now, as much as this passage is an encouragement for those who are God's people, it's also a warning to those who are not God's people. And I want to encourage you this morning to ask yourselves, do I serve God's king who sits at God's right hand? Or am I his enemy? So those are really the only two options that we have, biblically. Do you serve the king, or are you his enemy? If you haven't turned from your sin and believed in Jesus, you are one of God's enemies. And the sobering truth from this passage is that God's enemies will be conquered. It's going to happen. This passage also holds out hope for you in that God's son patiently waits to defeat his enemies. There's still time. This passage calls you to bow before God's king before it's too late and I encourage you to wrestle with that this morning and not delay in thinking that through. If you don't know exactly what that means, what I'm talking about in turning from sin and believing in Jesus, bowing before God's son, I'd encourage you to come talk to someone up front after the sermon. We'll have elders up here. We'll have some ladies to pray with you. I'd encourage you to talk with someone after the service. Do you serve the king who sits at God's right hand? Wrestle with that this morning. Well, which of the angels is God's son? Which of the angels is eternal? Which of the angels sits at God's right hand? This is the point in the chain of quotations where you're supposed to be nodding your head. None of them. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is eternal. Jesus sits at God's right hand and rules. And so, as wonderful as these angels are, these ministering spirits who God commands to serve God's people, Jesus is superior to angels. And so the author of the book of Hebrews continues to show us that in every way, Jesus is superior. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious to us. You welcome us into your family as sons and daughters, not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious and kind. We thank you for this picture of Jesus, who is your son, because he is your son. The wonderful truth that we can be made sons and daughters through him. Work on our hearts this morning by your Holy Spirit. Comfort those who need comfort. And convict those who need conviction from your word. Amen.